Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, more importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Peter Scharf, who's president of the Sanskrit Library. We'll be speaking about um, an important new contribution to the field. It's a collection of papers in honor of uh, George Cardona. Uh, it's called um, Shabdan Nugamaha. Um, Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, now, uh, uh, George Cardona, who is his figure and why is he important? Maybe we can start there. Yeah, that's a good place to start. Yeah, uh, Professor George Cardona is the preeminent authority concerning research in Panini and grammar and one of the world's authorities concerning Indo-European linguistics. He's published a number of books and uh, about uh, 250 articles and reviews in this field. His book, Panini, a survey of research is the place to go for anyone who starts to do research on Panini and linguistics. And he published a a sequel to that. That was first published in uh, 1986, 1970s, 1976. And he published a sequel in 1990 uh, recent research in Paninian studies. And uh, then his volume, Panini, his work and its traditions, uh, background and introduction, is the first of a volume, a series of eight volumes he's planned that describe Paninian uh, research and Paninian uh, grammar. And its commentaries through the whole tradition of Paninian grammar. So this this work, just the introduction itself, is a a very sophisticated introduction to Paninian grammar and numbers about 800 pages uh, in its second edition. So these these three volumes so far have appeared and he's told me that uh, a couple of other volumes in that series are almost ready for publication. He's been working on them all his life. And uh, he's also an authority in the field of, of Indo-European linguistics, uh, historical linguistics, that is, of Indo-European languages, particularly the Indo-Aryan languages, which are basically Iranian and uh, uh, Sanskrit and its uh, uh, that is Avestan is the oldest Iranian language known and Sanskrit, the oldest uh, Indic language known. And these two languages and the descendants of these make up the Indo-Aryan languages. So that's all the, all the languages of Northern India, uh, except the Dravidian family, which make up the uh, Indo-Aryan languages in, in India. And, uh, Pahlavi and, and Pashto are included on in the uh, Iranian side. 
So he published a volume uh, survey of all these languages in conjunction with his uh, student, former student, Dhanesh Jain, called the Indo-Aryan languages. So these are his principal books in the field. And uh, he's, he's well known uh, throughout the world, uh, in, including in, in India. And he's received the President's Award, the, awarded by the President of India for his work on, on this, uh, on, on Sanskrit and Vyakarana and so on. Well, he's obviously an important figure in the field, and um, perhaps at some point I should reach out uh, for more of a conversation covering his life's work. Um, um, how did this? Um, how did this collection of papers arise? Like, what what prompted this, or you know, who who decided to put together this collection in his honor? Yeah. So, so he's also my teacher. <laughs> so he was my dissertation supervisor at the University of Pennsylvania, where I was in graduate school from uh, 1983 to 1990. And uh, uh, so I wanted to bring out such a volume in his honor uh, for many years, but uh, it was prompted by um, one of the contributors to this volume who at one point asked him or suggested to him that there should be a volume in his honor. And Professor Cardona suggested to her that she contact me. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, that was um, uh, Shashi Prabha Kumar, who teaches at uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University, or is now retired from there. Uh, so uh, so uh, Professor Cardona suggested she contact me about it. And, uh, and so I undertook to put together the volume volumes, it turned out to be volumes. I sent out announcements on various lists asking people if they'd like to contribute it, contribute to the volumes. And uh, there were there were about uh, 36 papers and 37 papers by uh, uh, as many uh, contributors. And uh, uh, I decided to bring out two volumes. It was too much to fit in one volume. So I divided it up into these two subjects. So the first is called Shabdanugamaha Indian Linguistic Studies in Honor of George Cardona, uh, volume one on Vyakarana and Shabda Bodha, and volume two on historical linguistics, Vedic, etc. So the etc. Et involves also uh, archaeology, uh, critical editing, um, and uh, other aspects of Vedic literature. There might be some in the audience who may not quite remember or not know what Vyakarana or Shaldabhoda is. Well, what are those? So Vyakarana is the, is the term used for traditional Indian grammar. Traditional Indian grammar in, in Sanskrit is called Vyakarana. And, uh, and that means Panini, who lived in about the 5th century BC, and uh, his successors, Katyayana, Patanjali, Bhartarhari, and a, a long tradition of commentary uh, leading up to the present time. And uh, many students of Sanskrit still study the, the works of Patoji Dikshita, the Siddhanta Komedi is part of the regular curriculum in Patshalas, traditional 
uh, schools of study in India. And um, Shabda Bodha is uh, what I would call uh, cognitive linguistics, uh, is, would be the modern term that comes closest to it. Shabda Bodha li literally means the cognition of speech or verbal cognition. So it's what people understand when they listen, when they hear language, when they hear sentences and how they, how they understand what that sentence means. So the sentence uh, has some, some overall uh, meaning, but it also has an internal structure. It has a, a structure that according to the grammarians and the mimansakas in India has the action or the meaning of the verb as its principal element and the, the agent or the direct object of action are subordinate to that and, and other things in the uh, cognition subordinate to them. So it creates a very detailed structure which has been analyzed by the cognitive linguists, I would call them, of the 17th and 18th centuries, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries in India uh, in response to the, the work of Nayakas and Mimansakas in this area. And there's a whole discussion that takes place between these three schools and other schools as well, Buddhists and uh, others, uh, starting from uh, very ancient times, even with Patanjali in the second century BC. So this tradition of discussion about what the various parts of speech mean or what speech forms are associated with what meaning conditions, what semantic conditions, this is all worked out in Paninese grammar, but then there were discussions about it among these philosophical schools uh, concerning what was predominant in the meaning, what was subordinate, how to interpret Paninese grammar and so on. And uh, these, these works by the grammarians in the uh, 15th through 18th centuries uh, really summarize the understanding of the grammatical school or the Paninian school on this issue. So there were a couple of papers, a few papers in this volume on those issues by um, in, in, in the various schools, one in Mimansa, one in Nyaya, one in Vyakarana and one in, in the, um, what would be called the field of Alankara Shastra or uh, um, literary criticism. So literary, literary criticism is also predominant. Alankara Shastra is also a predominant tradition or discipline of study in, 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 in traditional India. And these, this school also had their opinion about what was cognized from, uh, from speech forms. With respect to the second volume um, that is as broadly on historical linguistics, uh, sorry, uh, historical linguistics, could you say a bit more about what that means? Like, what is historical linguistics? Yeah, so historical and comparative linguistics was founded in the, um, I would say the late uh, 18th century, early 19th century. The, the famous figure who who really prompted the field is. Uh, Sir William Jones, who 
is is famous for having given a speech at the I think it's the second or third meeting of the Asiatic Society of Bengal, where he uh, had had studied Sanskrit, and he observed that there was a similarity between Sanskrit, ancient Greek, ancient Latin, and Persian, and that he suggested that all of these languages must belong to the same language family. They must have had the same origin. And this really prompted the careful research of Franz Bopp in, in Germany and a number of others who followed in the uh, 19th century to work out the science of historical and comparative linguistics. So they carefully examine the speech forms of various languages and, uh, and discover what the relationships are between the phonemes in that language and trace back how an original language could have undergone regular sound changes to bring about all of the speech forms in each of the individual languages. So different languages under, underwent different, uh, different sound changes and the structure of their phonemic system evolved gradually through people's usage, ordinary usage in those languages to bring about the modern languages. So, so one can determine that languages are uh, familiarly related in this way. And familial relationship is just one relation among languages. So I mentioned that you know, most of the languages of India, that is all of the languages of the Indo-Aryan family, the, the Indic languages descended from Sanskrit uh, are in that family, but it differs from the family of the Dravidian languages. The Dravidian languages, meaning uh, Tamil, Malayalam, Telugu, um, Kannada, and uh, Tulu, these, these languages from the Dravidian family, but, uh, but they also share a great deal with Sanskrit. So there's been a lot of, of tension in India over this, this issue about uh, the Aryan languages versus the Dravidian languages and, and so forth. But the Dravidian languages also have a close relationship with Sanskrit because they're intertwined with the tradition for, for 3000 years now. And, uh, and so the Dravidian languages have huge borrowings from Sanskrit and some borrowings also in the reverse direction. Sanskrit also borrowed some from the Dravidian languages. So the vocabulary in Dravidian languages is more than 50% derived from, from Sanskrit. So borrowing vocabulary is, is a different thing from familial relationship because there are many other features involved besides vocabulary in a language, but other features also get borrowed. So some syntactic influence from Dravidian also appears in Sanskrit. Some, some phonetic in, influences like retroflexion of consonants uh, is borrowed from Dravidian in Sanskrit. And, uh, and so there's a, an intertwining of these uh, language families in the area, and this is called the aerial effects. 
of, uh, of language influence, which is also a part of the study of historical and comparative linguistics. So there, there's a, what's called the genetic relationship, but you know, the genetic relationship in languages is just an analogy to genetics. Because in, in genetics, you, you inherit your DNA from your parents, but the, but the relationship in, in linguistics is not quite so definitive. Okay, there, there, are, there are a lot of inherited features, but there are many features which come from other languages through contact. And, and those contact features are called the aerial effects uh, or substratum effects. Sometimes they're called depending on the relationship between the languages. So there, there's a very close relationship between the Dravidian family and the Aryan family in India as, as well. So for example, Malayalam has about 80% of its vocabulary derived from Sanskrit. And, and what's interesting is even the, even the advocates of, of Tamil nationalism and, uh, and uh, independence for Tamil Nadu and so forth and such highly volatile and controversial political uh, movements, even they, have names which are derived from Sanskrit, ironically. Yeah, it's it's um, perhaps it's worth um, saying aloud that um, on this podcast we engage all sorts of ideas in a respectful manner, and it is my hope certainly that those who are listening, who may be uh, heritage learners, understand that scholars at the Western Academy, in in my personal experience, by and large, have great respect for Indic civilizations um, and are, are sort of uh, burning the midnight oil uh, in hopes of, of clarifying historical and linguistic processes. Um, so this, uh, you make an important point about when we talk about uh, the, the genetics, uh, the, 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 the heritage of languages, that it's only an, uh, an analogy to um, it's not a direct analogy to genetics in its proper sense, insofar as um, in terms of bloodlines or genes, it's a vamsha, it's a lineage. There's it a line to be traced. Whereas with respect to genetics, it's more of a web where there are cross, where there's much more cross pollination, sort of back and forth. Would you agree with that? No, actually, I was I would say it's there's as there's cross pollination in genetics in. In the field of linguistics, there's much more variability than in genetics. It's, mm -hmm. it's not as clear a lineage, okay? Because there's there's lots of borrowing from from just from contact. It's a social phenomenon. Language is a social phenomenon. It's not just a, it's not a biological phenomenon. So the analogy to it's just an analogy to genetics when we talk about parent languages and daughter languages and so forth. They're not really daughters, right? There's no genetic relationship there. It's yes. A, so what I was saying is that idea of lineage or line or relationship that occurs in genetics, but that doesn't really occur directly in linguistics because it's right, more exactly. of a web. It's a web of association. That's right. That's right. That's right. I thought you said the opposite. It sounded. Like oh that. no 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 the the, the much the, the, right. It's much more of a web in in the field of linguistics than it is in the field of biology. <laughs> 
And also, it seems to me that um, while these questions are important, you know, uh, separating out, you know, what came from where currently we have, um, we have uh, Japanese cars or German cars, well, to say, well, no, the car was invented in America, right? And then, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Currently, we have the fabric of culture that that's been impacted by various traditions. Um, and it doesn't make it any more or less Hindu or Indic, whether it whether it's primarily from a Dravidian heritage or a Sanskritic heritage or both or neither. So, so um, it, it's sort of complex to try to separate out what came, what came from where in this kind of linear fashion. Um, yes, uh, it is. And sometimes the, the attributions of linear development are misleading or incorrect. So you mentioned the car. So, so the motor automobile, right? The motor-driven automobile was invented in America, but it was just a small, uh, um, a, let's say, advance or modification of, this, of, the steam, of, of the train, of the steam engine, which was invented in England. And, and of course, the horse-drawn vehicles or, or ox-drawn vehicles were around for thousands of years. So, so they were also called cars, in a sense, chariots. The word chariot is related to the word car. And these were around for thousands of years. So, so it's a, you know, a small development is added on onto the top. The car wasn't invented out of nothing, right? It was a, it was a small modification to replace the steam engine with a, with a, um, uh, an engine that uh, burned um, carbon fuel. Okay, so so that mo- that was a modification, and and that runs independently a, a small vehicle compared to a train, which drags along, you know, a long series of cars behind it. Indeed. So in this in the same way, uh, inventions in linguistics have a history. So I mentioned that historical linguistics was invented in, in Europe. However, however, the histories of linguistics, most histories of linguistics, trace the history of linguistics from the Greeks through the Romans to medieval Europe. And then uh, they see as a sort of branch and so forth. I wrote an article myself contributing to a volume on the his handbook of the historical uh, handbook of historical linguistics uh, that uh, traced the history of linguistics in this way and talked about uh, the contribution of of uh, of India to the field as under the heading of pre-grammar now this this in my opinion and I wrote to the editor about this is, is an insult and, and it's, it's, it's laughable it's, in the face of pandemic. It's it's both laughable and an insult because in fact the Indian tradition has contributed not just to grammar and it can hardly be called pre-grammar. It's also contributed to the science of phonetics, to the science of syntax, you know, to all branches, semantics, to all branches of, of linguistics. To just say that it's pre-grammar is ridiculous. And I said, there should be a contribution in each of these areas in your volume, not just one on pre-grammar. But he he insisted that that was the way the volume was going to be. 
But uh, what I would do and what some, uh, a couple of uh, histories of Indian linguistics have done is they recognize that actually the primary sequence in the development of linguistics is from India because India had an extremely sophisticated science of phonetics, semantics, and, so, so, uh, and uh, grammar in, in the early centuries uh, BC, you know, starting with uh, Shakalya's analysis of the Rig Veda into the Padapata and the development of the Pratishakyas, the science of Nirukta, uh, uh, which was sometimes called etymology. Uh, but these, these sciences are really the beginning of a, of, a, of a science of language that was not matched in the West. And Paninian grammar, the sophistication of Paninian grammar was the direct inspiration for the sound laws that were invented in the Seven, uh, in the 18th century, late 18th century, early 17th century that, that founded historical and comparative linguistics. So it's Panini's sound laws, which track what's called sandhi, or the phonetic changes that take place within words or between morphemes within words and between words. They borrowed this concept from Panini and applied it in a historical way, in a temporal way looking at many languages together. So it was an innovation, but it was an innovation closely based on and inspired directly by the knowledge of Sanskrit and Paninian grammar by these uh, scholars in, in, uh, in Europe in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Fascinating uh, for, for so many reasons. Um, let me, um, so these volumes, um, how do I phrase this? Who might be interested in them? Like who might most benefit from reading the articles in this volume? And let me give you an example of what I mean. So uh, one of my interests, um, as many of the listeners may know, I'm, I'm technically a Sanskrit, uh, um, a scholar of Sanskrit narrative, um, 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 Puranas and the epics, um, but neither here nor there for the podcast really. But uh, my my master's work was on the Valmiki Ramayana. And it's, it's a work that I return to every now and then it, it still fascinates me there's a, a there's a fascinating paper in the second volume by Robert Goldman on the on on, on the um, poetics of the Valmiki Ramayana and I certainly may not necessarily have known to look to this volume for research on the Valmiki Ramayana so could you give us a sense of who might be uh, who might most benefit from this volume yeah okay so uh yeah, obviously, let me just say a word about the first volume. You know, the, the first volume, uh, it's, a, it's a narrower area. It covers a narrower area, the Vyakarana and Shabda Bodha, that is the grammar and, uh, and cognitive linguistics uh, in the Indian tradition. And so uh, people who are in the field of uh, studying scholars, studying uh, Sanskrit grammar or um, uh, Alankara Shastra, uh, Nyaya and Mimansa may be interested in, in this volume. Uh, in particular, though, there are some papers in there which are extremely important. So one, the first volume in the first, uh, the first paper in the first volume 
Uh, it describes the discovery of a manuscript at Harvard University where uh, I was managing a project to catalog the 2000, about approximately 2000 manuscripts at Harvard University. We created a descriptive catalog, a digital descriptive catalog of all of these manuscripts. And we stumbled across this one manuscript, which was on the, uh, it's, it's, it's a text which shows the variant readings in the uh, Pananian Sutra Pata. And, uh, and so this, this shows about twice as many readings, variant readings, as had been previously documented by Keelhorn. Uh, and so is crucial even for the very base text of the Ashtadhyayi. So, you know, all these students who are studying uh, Vyakarana in traditional Pachalas are, are learning a certain uh, uh, text of the Ashtadhyayi, which, which may not be the original text of the Ashtadhyayi, and they're not aware of this history. So this is an important, uh, particularly important paper. It's, the text is, is called the Nagesha Pariyalochit Bhashya Sam Sammatta Ashtadhyayi Sutra Pata, Ashtadhyayi Pata. Nagesha Pariyalochita Bhashya Sammatta Ashtadhyayi Pata. That is the, the recitation of the text of the Ashtadhyayi accepted in the Mahabhashya as examined by Nagesha. And uh, so this this, uh, this text looks at Nagesha's comments on the Mahabhashya and uh, determines what are the correct readings according to him. And, uh, and it mentions all the variants that he discusses. And uh, so it's an extremely important paper for the whole history of, of Sanskrit grammar. And then there are, you know, about half a dozen other papers which deal with um, uh, Pananian derivation in various ways. Uh, one that I wrote deals with how Panani uses what we would call future conditions, you know, that people tend to want to construct derivations of Pananian grammar in a certain order. But uh, sometimes, sometimes that order has to anticipate the application of a rule which is applied later in the derivation. I call these future conditions. Uh, and, and they're justified because uh, they're justified on the grounds that actually Pananian grammar is describing language and that language and that grammar exists in a way in, in sort of the mental understanding of all of the speakers of the language. And so it's a static phenomenon. And it's not like we're creating something the way a potter creates a pot. We're, we're reconstructing artificially the language that already exists. And because it already exists, there's no real question of primary, prior and latter. It's, it's just a artificial procedure. And so you can have what are called these future conditions. And so there, that's, there's that discussion and uh, similar papers which deal with interesting issues of, of uh, the derivation, sequence of derivation of the validity of certain 
principles that are used in Panini grammar of, of what is understood by putting items in sequence with each other, whether, whether the rules really mean them to be an immediate sequence or, or there's, can, can have something in between two items in a sequence. Uh, certain terms in the formation of compounds like shesha, which means remainder. What is the remainder in, in a certain rule of forming compounds that describes what are called bahuvrihi compounds? Uh, bahuvrihi compounds are, are, are described as being the remainder with respect to the other categories of compounds which are described. And what is the universe within its re a remainder? All, all these kinds of questions are dealt with they're technical questions of Panini and grammar, but they're very important questions. And one, one question was dealt with by, by uh, Alej Ruiz Falquez on the optionality, that is options in the grammar that are recognized in the grammar according to Kachayana Vyakarana, which is a, which is a, a, a Pali grammar, okay? And, and this, this is relevant even to Sanskrit grammar because there's a question about what the three terms uh, uh, concerning options in Panini and grammar mean, that is va, vibhasha, and anyatarasyam, all have been interpreted in the Paninian tradition as being uniform in meaning. But uh, a famous Indian, a famous uh, American scholar of Sanskrit grammar Paul Kiparsky had proposed that these terms uh, designate a sort of uh, uh, variation and uh, he terms Panini a variationist, meaning that these mean uh, different percentage, percentages of the frequency of usage in the language. And so this scholar, Alej Ruiz Falquez takes up the question because it looks like in the polygrammar, there's some recognition of some difference in meaning among these terms. So, so that question and his analysis has some relevance to this discussion in Paninian grammar. And uh, so then there's also a, a, you know, a paper there by a Japanese scholar, Ozono is his family name, about, uh, about what constitutes correct speech. And he reviews uh, topics brought up in the Paspashatnika of the Mahabhashya and traces their source in, very carefully traces the source of those arguments in earlier texts, uh, citations from the Rig Veda and other Brahmanas, Brahmanas and so forth. And he concludes that actually Panini, uh, I'm sorry, Patanjali, uh, recognized a sort of realizing power of speech, not just a flat, uh, a flat language uh, science, but it, that speech itself has the power to realize uh, something in our lives. It uh, creates something. And, and this creative power of speech is something that is dealt with in uh, some of the other texts in the second volume. So for example, the, the work by the scholar I mentioned, uh, uh, Shashi Prabhakumar Kumar talks about the realizing power of, of speech in the very famous Vak Sutta, <clears throat> that is Rig Veda 10, 125, which talks about the power of speech to create 
the entire universe. Um, so this kind of realizing power of speech is an important concept in, in the Indian tradition. But that second volume has a number of important papers which are of more general interest, I think, to um, any in Indians who are even the Indian public, not necessarily scholars, because they deal with topics which are of important contemporary interest, um, you know, sort of political or sociological issues. So Osco Parpola, for example, very carefully in a long paper summarizes all the evidence from archeology span and linguistics together that uh, detail the, the history of of Proto-Indo-European into Proto-Iranian, into Vedic and Avestan, into Middle Indic and so on. And particularly locates what is the, the source at various stages in the development of Proto-Indo-European to Sanskrit. Uh, and, and that's very interesting scholarships to summarize because this has been such a hot political issue in, in India, which is, uh, unfortunately not well understood and, and many people make it a more of a political issue than it should be. It's a really an issue of science and it should be approached in that sense. We wanna find out what the truth is about this. And uh, we don't wanna rely on just political uh, banter one way or the other. Uh, but the, the evidence he summarizes is very important for the question. Another very important paper is by George Dunkel, who uh, looks at the Sarvanukramani. The Sarvanukramani is an ancient text written in the several centuries BC, which describes the authorship, among other things. Sarvanukramani means not only the authorship, but also uh, what the principal topic or the deity to whom a hymn may be dedicated as well as the meter of the hymn. And these things all collected together were listed in various Anukramanis separately, but the Sarvanukramani talks about all of them. And in the Sarvanukramani, then uh, certain authorship is attributed to, and certain hymns are attributed to certain authors. And in his careful analysis of the linguistic features of the Vedic hymns, he discovers that there are distinctive linguistic features that belong to the hymns which are attributed to various families. In other words, the so-called family books of the Rig Veda and the same hymns which are in the non-family books that is in the first, ninth and 10th mandalas uh, and parts of the eighth mandala, which do not belong to the uh, specific family. All these hymns, which are attributed to specific families, share distinctive features which, which verify and validate the attributions of these hymns to particular authors in the Sarvanukramani. Now, in the, now uh, there, there, uh, there's a scholar um, in the uh, late 19th century who who denigrated the Sarvanukramani saying that it was just fanciful. The attribution of hymns to certain authors was fanciful. And this, this validation of that attribution is very important. Uh, it uh, it uh, 
validates and uh, and uh, um, verifies the important importance of the Sarvanukramani for for these attributions. Another another important paper by Hans Hock uh, discusses the syntax of uh, Tatwamasi. Now, Tatwamasi, as you know, is one of the Mahavakyas and incredibly important in the science of Vedanta in India, which, uh, which for thousands of years was understood to mean literally uh, that thou art or you are that. And the that there is understood to refer to Brahman, that is the absolute uh, unbounded uh, Satchidana, the, the existence, uh, consciousness, bliss, okay, absolute uh, consciousness. And, uh, and the identification, you are that, is the realization, recognizes the realization on the part of Shweta Ketu in uh, Chandogya Upanishad, I think it's the Chandogya Upanishad, uh, where he, he recognizes him as uh, having reached the state of recognizing that his individual consciousness, subjective consciousness, is the same or identical with the absolute consciousness, which is the source of the whole universe. And uh, this, so this important concept of Advaita Vedanta has been understood to be uh, summarized in this sentence, Tatwamasi. Now, about 20 years ago, there was an article by a rather famous, rather well-known and, and uh, competent uh, Western scholar who said that the tut here can't be a pronoun. It has to be understood adverbially. And he tr would translate it rather, you are like that, or you are in that way. And this translation was then used by another well-known American scholar, he's actually originally from Sri Lanka, who, who put out a translation of the Upanishads along with his edition of the Upanishads. And he translated it accordingly, that uh, you are in that way. But uh, so 20 years, this, this has survived. And it was even mentioned again by a third scholar, third rather well-known uh, uh, English scholar, who, uh, who, who upheld this as one of the important contributions of recent American scholarship to the understanding of Sanskrit. Now, the whole Indian tradition and, and most modern Indian scholars, including others like myself, balked at such an interpretation as ridiculous. But uh, Hans Hawk took, uh, undertook the careful syntactic research to demonstrate that this modern interpretation of the phrase was false and upheld the traditional interpretation that tatwa, tatwa masi uh, does actually mean you are that and that, that there is a pronoun and not a pronominal adverb. So this, this is important to, uh, to rectify the misunderstanding that has been current and copied in modern Western scholarship. Fascinating. Now, um, what I'd like to do before we close uh, for today is um, tell us a little bit about the Sanskrit library that you're the president of. Um, and as you talk about it, maybe make mention of some of the educational opportunities through that platform. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, before we turn to that, let me just mention one other paper, which I think is important for- Sure. Uh, a actually, there are a couple of, one is, one is by uh, Lauren Bausch, uh, uh, a scholar in, in California, in the United States, who worked on the concept of caste. Now, caste is a really hot topic in, in, in modern India today. And, uh, and, and it's a point of contention. And the, the whole idea of racism is such a hot political topic today that I think this is worth mentioning. And her, her research showed that, that, uh, that there are a number of discussions in ancient texts which show that varna uh, can be, can be a, a concept which is looser than genetics, okay? So, so there, are, there are texts which show that certain individuals belong to more than one varna at a time. That is, someone can be both a Brahmin and a Kshatriya at the same time. And so the concept, she says, has to be understood, at least in some contexts, as referring to capacities or, or powers or roles of an individual, rather than to uh, strict uh, and rigid uh, uh, racial classes. And this is, this is important, and it's something that everyone, both on uh, the right and left of this issue, should understand that uh, in ancient India, the concept of class, at least in some texts, was understood to be uh, having capacities or roles in society. And so that's, that's one uh, paper which I think would be of general interest to, to people. And, and one other which I just want to mention briefly is uh, Edwin Giraud, a, a senior scholar of uh, Sanskrit poetics, talks about uh, figures of speech in, uh, in the Nati Shastra. And uh, the Nati Shastra has sometimes been criticized as having a rather uh, uh, minimal description of figures of speech. It only describes four figures of speech. And what he points out is that uh, Bharata's Nati Shastra is not dealing with individual figures of speech. It's making a typological classification. And so, so the, it's not guilty of the last lack of sophistication, which sometimes has been attributed to it. It, it actually is much more sophisticated. So that's an interesting article for people in the field of, of uh, poetics or dramatics to, to look at. Indeed. So now, uh, uh, yeah, so you, you You'd like to turn to some more general topics, and and you mentioned the Sanskrit library. Uh, yeah, yes, what I, is it? Yeah, I, I founded the Sanskrit library in in two thousand two. It's a digital library of Sanskrit texts, uh, uh, lexical resources, and other linguistic resources that can connect the lexicons with the with the uh, texts. And the idea is to allow the, the public, that is the public who has some interest in Sanskrit and knows some Sanskrit because all of, our, all of the things on our site are in Sanskrit. We don't have translations and we don't have PDFs of texts. And PDFs of texts are available from archive.org and other sites. 
and many sites, you know, there are many websites today which make texts available, but most of these texts that are made available are, are just available as, uh, as text to read. And, and that's all you can do with them there. Uh, occasionally some websites interconnect texts in an interest, interesting way. But what we do on our side is try to connect the text with the lexicons and the linguistic resources to allow scholars of Sanskrit to understand the texts themselves, the original texts. So what we did was we, we digitized in, in conjunction with Thomas Malton at the University of Cologne, 45 lexical resources. That is all of the major lexical resources, uh, Sanskrit to English dictionaries, Sanskrit, Sanskrit mono linguistic dictionaries like the Shabdakalpa Druma and the Bachaspatya, uh, and uh, and the great uh, uh, Sanskrit German lexicon of Bootlink and Roth. We we digitized all these sources, and with the Moni Williams, and we integrate them in a single interface, so it, one can look up a word and then click on the various dictionaries to see how it's defined in in these different resources. And this is very important because we've included some specialized dictionaries as well as this lexicon, which, which many people don't use because they're just too hard to access. Even if a scholar has these in his own private library, he would hesitate to get up out of his chair and pull the book off the shelf in order to look it up in these several different sources. Whereas here we have it readily available just by clicking on a, you know, a single click. You can bring the same word up in this specialized dictionary. So this allows greater access to greater detail with greater ease. And so we hope to improve the scholarship uh, by giving people access to these various resources. And we've also connected them to the texts. So one is reading a text, one can click on a word in the Sunday analyzed uh, version of the text, that is the text in which the phonetic changes between words have been um, analyzed and the word appears in its standalone form as in a padapata, one can click on that word and get a morphological analysis of the word. Uh, one may have to choose between more than one morphological analysis, which may be possible, and then click on the stem and it will immediately lead one to the dictionary where one can get the definition. So this integrates the dictionaries with the text in a way that makes them extremely easy to access and uh, may help and improve and ease the scholarship on languages and the understanding of texts. And this may be useful even for the lay reader. So we're, it's very much a, a work in progress, our website. It has a number of features which are, are are good and easy to access. Uh, it also has some kinks here and there, which uh, we're still working out and we're understaffed. We need help. We need, we need funds to be able to hire help. And uh, we're, we're trying to make this, build this, this uh, website over now 20 years and uh, still have a lot to go to improve it and increase the number of texts on the site. But that's our ideal is to have all the text access in a way that allows immediate 
access to the linguistic features and meanings of the text. The URL for the Sanskrit library is sanskritlibrary.org. It will be um, also included in the podcast notes uh, for this episode. Before you close, why don't you say a little bit about um, online education through the Sanskrit library, um, the types of offerings you have, and really how did this come up? Because in a couple of our of our conversations on the podcast, we've been noting um, the, the, the burgeoning field of online education and, and COVID's just solidified and crystallized that for many of us. So tell us a little bit about um, that aspect of the library, please. Yes, and that, that, that was actually the, the impetus for us as well. Uh, when, when everyone was locked in their homes, uh, we decided to go online with Sanskrit education. Of course, I've been teaching Sanskrit uh, for 30 years now, 20 years at Brown University and, and 10 years at various Indian institutions uh, since then. But uh, when we were uh, not able to meet in person, we decided to start offering classes online. So Tanuja Ajotikar and I both offer classes through the Sanskrit library. And now we've begun to include some others as well. Prasad Bide in Bombay has just offered a very interesting course on Natya Shastra. And uh, so these, these courses, uh, are available online at the Sanskrit Library under courses on the Sanskrit Library webpage, where we describe two categories of courses. There are some courses which are meant to uh, be equivalent to university courses, as in in the United States and in, in Europe and elsewhere at Indian universities. Uh, they're equivalent to undergraduate or graduate courses uh, of one semester each. We offer, for example, introductory Sanskrit, and in one year we would cover all the basics that are meant to be covered by a one-year graduate course for uh, students who are going into graduate school. <clears throat> and uh, we also offer continuing education courses, which are mostly 10 lesson courses, uh, you know, one hour a week for 10 weeks, for example, and they're meant for the general public and don't have any homework, but they're meant to introduce various topics of interest uh, to, to the general public. And they range from things like the Nati Shastra to uh, a course introdu introducing Panini and grammar. And uh, we have uh, uh, descriptions of all these courses online one one that we, we wanted to offer to the general public, particularly during the COVID time was traditional Indian health maintenance and essential Ayurvedic practice through its sources. This, this course was meant to introduce to people the traditional uh, daily routines that uh, should be performed by everyone to enhance their health and, and the basic understanding of Ayurveda for our health. <clears throat> Uh, another is the uh, introduction to the Rig Veda. Uh, I mentioned the introduction to the Pananian tradition. And one, we have a course on the uh, retelling of Rama's story in Sanskrit literature, looking at how, how the story of Rama is told, in, not only in the Valmiki Ramayana, as a Upakhyana in the Mahabharata, but in numerous other texts, such as the Ananda Ramayana uh, and 
some 25, 35 other Sanskrit sources. And this course on Sanskrit theater, uh, I haven't yet offered it, but I have on the website a description of a course I intend to offer on concepts of the self in classical Indian philosophy, creation mythology and enlightenment in the Indian tradition and uh, Vedic philosophy of language. So these are the uh, courses we have now available. Uh, and, uh, and we also offer what we call pundit training courses. Uh, Tanuja is a traditionally trained uh, Sanskrit scholar through, the, through a traditional uh, uh, education platform uh, group in, in Pune. Uh, and so she offers courses which, uh, which are based on that kind of instruction, very detailed and careful and careful instruction of Sanskrit texts and their commentaries, uh, including um, general courses in literature, but also uh, specifically in uh, Sanskrit Vyakarana. So reading the Siddhanta Komodi, for example. It looks great, actually. I'm really glad to know of this development. Um, I tend to be a bit of a hub in terms of um, uh, Hindu studies online education in between um, uh, teaching uh, at the OCHS, continuing studies, and a number of other platforms. And now that I know that these courses exist, I may well send students over who would be interested in these topics. Um, Wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for appearing on the podcast today. And yeah, thank you very much. And I'm, I'm so delighted you contact me and I'm, I'm always doing everything I can to bring Sanskrit knowledge uh, to, to the public awareness. And I really appreciate your helping me do that. Excellent. Uh, for those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Peter Scharf, who is the president of the Sanskrit Library. Uh, the, the, the link is in the, in the podcast notes. We've been speaking about, uh, among other things, this uh, really important um, um, couple of volumes on Indian linguistic studies in honor of George Cardona. Until next time, um, stay safe, stay sane. And keep contemplating the importance of Sanskrit. Take care. Let me let me mention one other thing before you close. That the the link to these publications is available on the Sanskrit Library website under publications, where I there are, there are some links that give descriptions of all the contributors to the volumes and the table of contents, uh, and also a link to the press where one can order the books. Excellent. All right. Take care. Thank you again. <laughs>